Well, good afternoon. How are we doing? We got, got a little juice left? Got a little juice? Well, um, and Roger hit this earlier, but it, it is a special day no matter where you are, no matter how many are gathered, uh, because what this day is all about, as we really remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And when it comes to the resurrection, you really cannot overstate its importance, can you? I mean, it's the event that separates Christ from all other people, and it is the event that separates Christianity from all other religions. Tim Keller speaks to this in his best-selling book, Reason for God, and it's in there that Keller writes these words. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to accept all that he said. If he did not rise from the dead, then why accept any of what he said? The question is not whether or not we like his teaching. The question is whether or not he rose from the dead. Now, I would imagine that many of you out there this morning know that the resurrection is kind of a big deal. And that Easter is pretty important. And you're probably not out there going, hey, Michael, this is a real curveball. I had no idea you were going to talk about the resurrection this morning. But it's on days like today, above all other days, where I'm reminded of of one of my favorite pastors, Alistair Begg. And he always says the role of the pastor is not normally to tell the church that which they do not know, but rather to remind the church of that which they must never forget. And what we must never forget as God's people is the power of, And the the absolute majesty and this the magnificence that is the resurrection. And so what I want us to do this morning is take an old story and just really try to look at it through a a fresh set of eyes. And in the process, I'm going to have three pretty simple points. A good round Trinitarian number, as they say. And those points are this. Number one, that the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. It's central to the Christian faith. Number two, the resurrection is the source of all Christian hope. And then thirdly, the resurrection is the secret to living the Christian life. So it's the center of the faith, it's the source of our our hope, and it is the secret to our life. And there are a number of places we could go in the Bible to kind of unpack these truths, but there's really no passage of Scripture that deals with the resurrection in a more profound and pronounced way than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I'm going to invite you to turn there. If you haven't done so already, you can turn there in your Bibles or in your devices. I'm also going to put the verses up on the screen so you can follow along as I go. And as you turn to the book of Corinthians, let me just give you a little bit of context about what we're, in regards to what we're about to read. Um, Corinth, Corinth is a city that was in modern day Greece that was part of the Roman Empire. And so Paul, in one of his missionary journeys that we looked at in the book of Acts, had gone to Corinth and planted the first Christian church there. And so the book of Corinthians is him writing to that church. And you may know a little bit about uh, the church in Corinth. And And a lot of people, what they know about the church in Corinth is that it was a church that had incredibly bad sexual immorality. It was known for its sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, in that day and age, to Corinthianize, it really even became a verb. To Corinthianize meant to engage in sexual immoral behavior. 
But what you may not know about the city of Corinth is that it was also a city that was steeped in ancient Greek philosophy. And I don't want to bore you with Platonic thought or anything like that, but ancient Greek philosophy had a worldview that had a negative view of the body. So it had a low view of the body. And so because of that, it had a low view or it had disdain for this idea of a bodily resurrection. That would not have been something that that culture would have affirmed or that worldview would have thought was anything worth significance. And so what happened, most likely, is as a result of kind of this intellectual and cultural and philosophical movement in Corinth, some of those who had come to faith started struggling and getting pulled away from the Apostle Paul's teaching on the resurrection. And they began to start doubting or denying the future resurrection of believers and maybe even starting to doubt and deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. So Paul comes to this section of the letter, and he basically just says, hey, time out. Let me coach you up a little bit. And so he's going to write to them and explain to them the significance of the resurrection and why it matters to who they are as people. And so starting in verse 1, here's what Paul writes. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive and which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And so what Paul does at the beginning of this chapter is he lays out the basics of the Christian gospel. And he basically says it's composed or comprised of two essential parts. Part one is Christ's sacrificial and substitutionary death, and part two is Christ's bodily and literal and bodily resurrection. So part one is the cross of Good Friday, and part two is the Easter tomb of Sunday morning. Now, obviously, there's more connected to the gospel. And as you unpack the scriptures more, you see that. You see that he was the God-man, the deity of Christ. You see that he was born of a virgin. You see the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. You see the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. We see things of that nature. But at its core... The two essential components of the gospel are that Christ died for our sins. There's his purpose. According to the scriptures, it was predicted, and he was buried. It happened in history. And that Christ was raised from the dead to conquer death. According to the scriptures, it was predicted, and he appeared to many. It happened in history. So those are really the two guideposts of the gospel. And these two truths of the crucifixion and the resurrection come together to form the outline of the gospel and the foundation of salvation. And so when you hear those magnificent texts, like John 3.16, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is because of the life, the substitutionary and sacrificial death of Jesus... And because of the literal and bodily resurrection of Jesus, that those who place their faith in Jesus 
shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the reality is we live in a day and age where when that, those truths are communicated, when many people hear this, that Christ died for their sins according to the scriptures, and that Christ was raised from the dead, and that God offers salvation and the forgiveness of sin to all those who believe upon his name, for many it sounds completely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. For many, they look at it and they say, that, that is too simple for my sophisticated mind. Or maybe it's too good to be true for my broken and skeptical heart. And those responses kind of remind me actually of the first chapter in the book of Corinthians where Paul writes to them, these, these cultural elites, these educated Corinthians, and here's what he says. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so when you think about the gospel, part of its power, part of the greatness of the gospel is its simplicity. It is both simple and profound at the same time. I describe it sometimes as a, as a pool that a child can wade in and an elephant can swim in. And one of the great ironies of the gospel is that the very thing which seems too simple to be true and the very thing which seems too good to be true is actually the ultimate source of what is true. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. And it is in the life of Jesus that we actually finally make sense of this thing that we call life. You know, when you think about what it means to be a human, what it means to, to exist in this, as, in this human race, I think everyone understands that it is an existence that is full of yearning and desires. Yearnings and desires. Yearnings and desires that the natural world, the world that we can see, the world that we can touch, the things that natural world cannot satisfy, they cannot fulfill, fulfill, nor can they adequately explain why those desires even exist. From our desire for significance to meaning to our desire for purpose and relationship and our desire for connection and to be loved and to give love, our innate recognition of things such as justice and injustice and goodness and evil and truth and beauty and maybe the greatest desire of all, the desire for the afterlife. The desire that this world in which we live and breathe and move would not be all that there is and that those who have gone before us would not cease to be. And not be lost forever. And the question is, why do we yearn for such things? Why do those desires even exist? You know, I love the words of, of C.S. Lewis when he's posed with that question in Mere Christianity. And he writes, if we find in ourselves the desire in which this world cannot satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were created for another world. We were created for something else. 
And so I believe, and the scriptures teach, that those yearnings that exist in all of us, those desires that exist in all of us, are not there by accident. They are there by design as you reflect the God who made you. As we are made in the image of God, a relational, loving, self-giving, personal, holy, sacrificial God who has, as the scriptures speak to, set eternity in our hearts. He set eternity in our hearts. We yearn for an afterlife because God has put that yearning in us as a reminder that there's more to life than just this life. And it is in the resurrection where we finally see that that yearning is not random. That yearning is not pointless. That that yearning ultimately has a destination. It's a longing for the life that Jesus has made possible through the cross. And it's a longing for the place that Jesus has promised through the resurrection. You see, in the resurrection, we see God's victory over sin and death. We see God's promise of eternal life. And we see God's answer to our deepest longings. And though some of the Corinthian church, they had believed this, they were starting to drift they were starting to doubt. They were starting to be overwhelmed by their culture. And what is fascinating is that in this day and age, it's much the same. Not much has changed. There are many people sitting in pews around the world this morning. There are some people filling pulpits this morning who claim to be Christian, who hold Jesus in high regard, and who long to emulate his ethical teachings and his morality, and yet they deny his resurrection. And they say, well, that, you know, that's just foolishness. And I went to college, and I know better. But, you know, that, that, that goes against the laws of nature, as if God is confined to the laws of nature. And the problem with this denial is really twofold. One problem is, is the historical problem. Because you can't change who Jesus is. You can't change what Jesus did. You can't change who Jesus claimed to be. And you can't change 2,000 years of Christian belief. You can't do that. And so to claim to be a Christian while denying the central tenet of Christianity is a non-Christian position. It's not Christian. But even more than the historical problem, there's the theological problem. Because if there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no salvation. There is no forgiveness of sin. And this is the point Paul makes exceedingly clear, starting in verse 12. Here's what he says. He says, if, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 
And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, they've perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul really could not be any clearer, could he? The resurrection is the central truth of Christianity, and the resurrection is the truth upon which everything else hangs. Everything else finds its place because of the resurrection. And without the resurrection, his death has no power. And without the resurrection, the cross has no effect. Has no effect. I want to illustrate it this way. My, uh, my sophomore year in college, I was playing baseball at St. Mary's University. Go Rattlers. Okay, good. Uh, school spirit. And, uh, and so it was fall. It was fall ball. And so we were having inter-squad scrimmaging. And we had a guy transfer in from Hill Junior College. And this dude had a live arm. He threw about 98 miles an hour. He ended up getting drafted by the Cincinnati Reds. And so I came up to face this guy. And I had never faced anyone in my life who hovered around 100 miles an hour. And I'll never forget stepping in the batter's box and just the sound of the pitch as it went by me. I want to, this is what it sounded like. Sah! Sah! In case you were wondering. In case you were wondering what it sounds like. So I remember getting up there, and the first pitch goes by, and they call the strike. And I step out of the batter's box like baseball players do, and you try to act all cool and confident. And, and I, I get out there, and I'm just going to myself, man, if that ball hits me, like, I'm going to die. And I don't want to die as a 19-year-old at V.J. Keefe Stadium. I mean, that's not how I want to go. But to live as Christ, to die as gain, you get back in the box. I stare this cat down. He throws me another fastball. This time I swing, and I foul it off, which in baseball is no big deal. But I stepped out of that batter's box, calm, cool, collected. And in my, in my head I went, that was one of the greatest accomplishments <laughs> of your entire life, you know. It was wonder, just wonderful. It was a pretty lame existence. But then I get back in, and it's 0-2 count. And that guy throws me a changeup. Now, if you know baseball, you know that a changeup is a pitch where everything looks the same from the pitcher, except that it comes in much slower. So I'm expecting a 98-mile-per-hour fastball, and this guy throws me a 79-mile-per-hour changeup. And I swing before the ball's like halfway. I mean, just look like a total fool. And I walk back to the dugout a little bit, you know, embarrassed. But then I sit down, and, and honest to goodness truth, I sit down, and I just start thinking, not about the gospel at that time, but I start thinking about the power of a 98-mile-per-hour fastball how powerful that was, and how, how that was able to make every other pitch fall into place. It made every other pitch that much more effective because it was that powerful. And you see, a 79-mile-per-hour changeup is only effective when it comes on the heels of a 98-mile-per-hour fastball. Otherwise, it's just a normal pitch. Nothing special about it and nothing that I hadn't seen before. And when you think about the resurrection, without it, the life of Jesus, friends, it's actually nothing special. And the death of Jesus has no power. And the results of his death have no effect. If there is no resurrection, he ceases to be the God-man and becomes only a good man. And if he's only a good man, we're wasting our time. Because there's plenty of those. But they can't forgive sin. And as Paul writes, if that's true, we of all people are most to be pitied. 
So the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. And not only is it central to the Christian faith, the resurrection is the source of Christian hope. So we're going to skip all the way to verse 50. And there's a lot of good stuff in 15, chapter 15. But as we come to verse 50, we see a section that often gets read at funerals. If you've, if you've ever gone to a funeral. And what's happening is Paul is shifting his teaching from the necessity of the resurrection to the hope of the resurrection. And this is what he writes in verse 50. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, Easter not only reminds us of the events from 2,000 years ago, it also points us to the future at the resurrection that is to come, when the dead will rise in Christ with him in our resurrected and glorified bodies. It is important to understand this, and this is something that's actually really misunderstood in the church when I talk to people. But it is important to understand that the ultimate destiny of the Christian is not a bodiless existence where you float around in heaven playing a harp or something of that nature. But rather, the destiny of the Christian is a bodily existence in the eternal kingdom of God, the one described in Revelation 22, when that which is mortal and perishable will put on that which is immortal and imperishable. And Christ is the first fruit of that. Christ is is the one, is our Lord and our brother who has paved the way and, and undergone the first transition to that imperishable form. The resurrection is the source of Christian hope because the resurrection is the destiny of the Christian life. All hope is ultimately future. Ultimately future. When that which is mortal will put on the immortal. And while hope leads us not to despair, it does not eliminate the hard things of life, does it? Because life is hard. And while there's no escaping the hard realities of this life, there's also no quenching the hope of the believer who knows their existence goes beyond this life. And yet, it does not eliminate the trials. And there is no reality that is harder to face than that of death. There's just none out there that are harder than that of death. And we are constantly reminded of death, aren't we? Whether it's the loss, sometimes it comes in shouts, like the loss of a loved one, or a devastating illness, or a devastating disease. And sometimes it just, it's kind of whispered to us, you know? There's just a little whisper that life is passing you by. I experienced one of these whispers the other day when I was out in the front yard. Had my football with me. 
It's kind of playing a little, little toss with Elijah and Luke. I'm kind of just tossing the ball back and forth. And Elijah goes, hey, Dad, how hard can you throw the ball? And I looked at them. I said, pretty stinking hard. Come on. And they go, well, well, let me see. So I said, give me the ball. Get out of the way. So I took a five-step drop there in Antler Drive. I set up, and I threw an absolute laser across my yard into my neighbor's yard. But about a split second after I released the ball, I felt like this unique sensation that my arm had become detached from my body. And that like my arm was traveling with the ball across my yard. And this is not cool because like I used to have a rubber arm. I used to be able to wake up and it was just like throw all day, every day, as hard as I want, never had to warm up. And, and even though this is kind of a humorous story, this was a day where I was reminded once again that I am not what I once was. That Father Time really is undefeated and catches up to us all. You see, we all break down. We all do. And no matter how much you work out or how well you eat or how much you educate yourself, or how much yoga you do, it doesn't matter. As long as the Lord delays his return, the reality is that death will come to us all. And this is a hard truth. And yet, friends, it is in the resurrection. In the resurrection, we see that those who have placed their trust in Jesus are able to deal with death with a victorious hope. With a victorious hope. Because through the resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death. And through our faith in him, we become family members with him. We become heirs of his righteousness. And we can experience that victory as well. And we can say with our brother Paul, the words of verse 55, where he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of, of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As one theologian rightly noted, the resurrection changes the face of death for all his people. For death is no longer a prison, but a passage into God's presence. It's no longer a prison, but a passage into the very presence of God. A God who set eternity in our hearts and then through the resurrection made it possible for us to spend it with him. And so the resurrection, once again, it causes us to look back with the fullness of gratitude. And it causes us to look ahead with the fullness of hope, knowing what is to come. And not only does it inform us of the past and inform us of the future, the resurrection informs how we are to live in the present. And this is the words of Paul in his final two verses. For in the resurrection, we have the secret to the Christian life. The secret to the Christian life. This is what he says. Therefore, so therefore, after everything I've said to you, brethren, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Do you know how one's toil is not in vain? There's only one answer, and that's if this is not all there is. That's really the only answer. That's how your work for the Lord is not in vain. 
And so knowing by faith what is to come, we as Christians are to be people who live in the present with the future clearly in view. Knowing that our future estate has massive implications for our present existence and how we are to live. Now, many of you, you in here who know me and you know the story, you may know the story of how I met my wife because I talk about it all the time. I met Victoria on bus 84 when I was nine years old on my way to school. And from the very beginning, like, I wanted to be her boyfriend. Like, I, we used to call it go out. I wanted to go out with Victoria. But it took her, you know, roughly 17 years <laughs> or so, give or take, uh, to want to go out with me. And so what happened was during those 17 years, I went out with other people. And I entered into other relationships which typically did not go well. Relationships that led to heartache and sadness and frustration and disappointment. And here's the deal. If God had let me in on his little plan for me when I was nine years old, if he would have said, hey, sit down, son. You're going to marry Victoria Gallegos. Oh, how that would have changed my dating life. Oh, how I would have lived differently if I would have known of the reality of the one who awaited me. And and look, I didn't know what the future held. But if you are someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then while you may not know the twists and turns that life's going to throw you, you know how the story ends, and you know the goodness and the beauty of the one who awaits you. So don't spend your life chasing things that have no value and that do not last. For the resurrection does more than just guarantee our future. It compels us to action in the present. As we live lives unto God, as we communicate the gospel unto a world that's in desperate need of it. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus, he speaks, he says, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, The ones who recognize their sickness, those are the ones I came to heal. And the truth of the matter is that no matter how hard we try and pretend, we are all sick. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And every person in here has felt that in their own heart before. And not only is the heart so sick that we cannot understand it, we know that the world is so broken to a point where no one can deny it. It's broken by sin. It's broken because the creation has turned its back on the creator, and I am as guilty as anybody. The scriptures say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. That's why death is such an enemy. Because it's a result of sin. And it's required by a God who is holy. 
And the sad reality is that those who are unwilling to recognize their sickness, those who are unwilling to recognize their sin, are thus rendered incapable of recognizing the one who came to save them. They are blinded by their sin to the beauty of their Savior, the God-man who came to take the sin of the world. And while pride serves as a major stumbling block to the gospel, you know what else serves as a major stumbling block? It's shame. Shame. Some are so overwhelmed by pride that they look up the grace of God and they say, that's not necessary. And some are so overwhelmed by their shame that they look at the grace of God and they say, that is not possible. It's not possible. I've done too much. I've seen too much. I've experienced too much. I've, I've strayed too much. I'm just, I'm not worth it. And if, and if that's someone here, I want you to just to listen. And really for all of us, listen to verses 9 and 10. I skipped them earlier. But I want you just to hear how Paul describes himself in this chapter. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He says, I killed them. I stood by and they killed Stephen. I stood by when Christians got killed and I said, amen. And I'm the least of the apostles. And then in verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. What a life verse for really everybody in here. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Whatever it is that you have done, it's important to realize that God is not done with you. And where sin abounded, the scripture tells us that grace abounded all the more. And that the only sin that God cannot forgive and will not forgive is the sin of refusing his son. And the work of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection to be our Savior. So whatever it is you have done, Christ nailed that to the cross as our Savior. A Savior who died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. A Savior who rose from the grave according to the scriptures and appeared to many. Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is the resurrection, friends, that is the center of our Christian faith. It is the source of all Christian hope. And it is the secret to living the Christian life. So be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that because of the resurrection, your toil is not in vain. What a beautiful name it is. The name of of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on a today like today, of all days, we are reminded of your immense grace. God, and and I know that so many of us in here, we suffer from this ailment of numbness to you. We've heard the story so many times. We've heard about the resurrection so many times. And this overexposure to it has has brought about a callousness 
to its marvel and its majesty and its power. And so today, God, I pray that, that you would pierce the hearts of your people here. And that you would cause them to look upon the cross and look upon the empty tomb with a renewed sense of just awe. Awe and wonder. And God, if there's anybody in here who has not taken that step of faith, if there's anybody in here who doesn't, doesn't know what it means to be a child of God, they maybe thought the gospel was too simple, they maybe thought it was too good to be true, God, I pray that you would pierce their heart by the work of your spirit and they would turn from their sin and come to see who you really are. The God who's so holy that he cannot overlook sin and the God who's so loving that he did not leave us in it. And God, you willingly took flesh as the God-man, Jesus Christ. You lived a perfect life that we could not live. You died the sacrificial death meant for us. But death could not hold you. And you rose again, showing that you had conquered death. You had conquered sin. What you said was true. And that life abundant and life eternal can only be found in you. So God, tune our hearts to sing thy praise in everything that we do, knowing that each breath we take is a gift of your grace, knowing that our eternal destination has been secured by you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you this day and every day. For the grave is empty, he is risen, and he is our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.